You're listening to Fly By Night, a podcast by FedEx Pilots for FedEx Pilots. Brought to you by the FedEx Master Executive Council of the Airline Pilots Association. And now, here's your host, MEC Communications Chair, Captain Chris Lee. Welcome to our TA podcast series. Each podcast episode will begin with Negotiating Committee Chair, Captain Pat May's overview of the process on how the opener goals were established and how we got to where we are now. After that, each podcast will then focus on one section of the TA. Pat, talk to the pilots about this process and how we got to where we are now. Yeah, Chris, what's important for the pilots to understand as we present the information to them throughout these podcasts and other items of education is how we got here. The openers were developed by the MEC in conjunction and coordination with the negotiating committee, but we didn't pull these items out of thin air. They came and were driven by direct pilot input. So this is a pilot-driven contract from beginning to end. First and foremost of those pieces of information were the pilot surveys. We have surveyed the pilots continuously since beginning in 2019. Every six to eight months, those pilot surveys have been statistically significant, and it's informed the MEC on what the openers were and what level of focus our pilots wanted to have. Not only was it surveys, though, we also relied heavily on pilot DART reports, direct emails to contract enforcement, actual contract enforcement cases, grievances, subject matter expert input from our key committees. And finally, the MEC took all this information. We stepped through a very systematic process to highlight and identify the openers for negotiation. So this has been pilot-driven from beginning to end, and that's what informed us on the openers and also established the goals that are laid out in the opener. Thanks, Pat. In this episode of our TA podcast series, we're focusing on Section 25, Scheduling. And joining Pat today is Negotiating Committee member, Captain Rich Brown, and Scheduling Committee member, Captain Ted Donnett. Thanks for coming. Hi, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Pat. Both the company and ALPA opened Section 25 scheduling. Can you talk about the overall emphasis for the ALPA openers? Yeah, Chris, generally speaking, our opener included overall improvements in the quality of life in the scheduling arena without creating entire rewrites. There are a lot of tentacles in 25, which we're very well aware of, especially and in particular with Section 4. While negotiating and prioritizing scheduling changes, we operate under the general philosophy that One pilot's trash is another pilot's treasure. Chris, more specifically, the pilots identified through surveys three key areas for negotiations. Bidline adjustments, disruptions, and the reserve system. Those items, however, were limited in their scope to specific areas that would have the largest impact over the focus timeline that we had developed. You've mentioned before the company didn't share their openers. Can you talk some about what their openers for Section 25 included? Chris, a common theme begins to emerge from the company's opener, and you'll hear this, pilots will hear this on uh, most of the podcasts that we do. Uh, The company has sought to create new efficiencies and eliminate areas that they identified previously in bargaining that they desire to change on. Um, So oftentimes the company would state that they don't want to pay two pilots to do the job of one. So a picture starts to emerge here, Chris, of what the company actually proposed and how many things we defended against during our negotiation. So we didn't engage on any of those issues, the substitution to a a solution there or a solution that would have worked for the pilots, as well as the force flying. 
those things never uh, came to a solution in a bargaining uh, standpoint. However, there were certainly some areas that the company had a justifiable um, proposal that they presented us with. Some of those paradigm shifts included things like the student lines and a change from R24 to R16, which we'll, we'll talk about in more detail with Rich and Ted. Rich, can you talk some about what changed with the secondary working window? Sure, Chris. To start with, it actually wasn't a change. The existing language from 2015 was changed uh, to match the reality of the window in which pilots can actually make submissions, which was 115 hours rather than 144. Uh, But that length of 144 was part of what drove uh, when secondary lines were released for the pilots. So what we were able to do is uh, utilize that smaller secondary working window along with other adjustments to the windows in the bidding process in order to get secondary lines out earlier for uh, a day earlier for captains and five hours earlier for the first officers. And then there is an exception when the secondary working window closes on a company holiday. Looking back at the openers in Section 12, you had a goal to eliminate the use of base hotel standby periods. Can you talk to the pilots about how you address that? So, Chris, this is probably an area where I'd mentioned earlier there are tentacles from Section 25 into other areas, in particular Section 4, but this one has tentacles in Section 12. And in Section 12, we originally identified the elimination of base hotel standbys altogether. Um, That was a a pretty high bar. We knew we were going to face challenges with the company on trying to achieve that language, uh, but there were certainly cascading effects um, and secondary effects of us trying to eliminate base hotel standby altogether. And Rich and Ted will kind of explain some of the issues that we worked through there. Although we were not successful in eliminating the base hotel standbys, we were able to address in Section 25 many of the underlying issues with base hotel standbys. The biggest issue being is that our R24 lines were almost consistently assigned base hotel standbys. We were able to make it so the company could not create new base hotel standbys after the secondary line process. If a base hotel standby did exist in open time, an R24 or long haul pilot would be able to be assigned that trip, but the company will no longer be able to create a base hotel standby specifically for that pilot. Another one of the issues revolves around how long a base hotel standby can be extended past their footprint. Currently, there is no limit. Pilot on the last day of their hotel standby could be assigned a three-day trip. There is now a domestic limit of 36 hours and an international limit of 84 hours. The big picture, um, the fix was that we limited when and how the company can construct base hotel standbys. All known base hotel standbys have to be included in the bid pack. and The company does have the ability to add more base hotel standbys during the secondary line process. But following the secondary line process, they can no longer create base hotel standbys. So for that R24 situation, the company can no longer create a base hotel standby out of thin air that exactly matches your R-day block and then uh, put you in hotel standby for virtually all of your R24 blocks. As Rich mentioned, the R24 issue, it obviously came to light in our discussions about uh, fixing the hotel standby problems that we're having. One of those issues, as Ted mentioned, was the de facto solution there for the company, which is to take an R24 pilot, move them into the base hotel standby, which essentially creates a short call reserve pilot. 
one of the ways in which we dealt with that once we had a partial solution on the base hotel standby issue was to create an actual long call reserve, so an R-16. So we modified R-24 to R-16, which in effect now creates a real long call reserve status. And Pat, we ended up choosing R-16 because open time is assigned at the latest at 10 a.m. the morning prior. So that would give most pilots the ability to commute in the day of and the earliest that they could have a show time on the morning launch would be 2 a.m. Yeah, that's right, Ted. I mean, the company can still, like they could in R24, sign it out of um, the open time order if it's necessary. Uh, but we do think pilots will look at this and still make that decision on, you know, does it fit their schedule? Um, we do believe that um, a lot of pilots enjoyed R24. We had that feedback from the MEC and from pilots directly. And we didn't want to step away from that paradigm entirely. We certainly thought the R16 fix um, would create a, a, an actual long call, a desirable reserve call out, if you would, for for pilots, depending on their geographic location. Just so we're clear, this fix doesn't prevent the company from taking a, a long call reserve and making them into a base hotel standby, but it does limit their ability to do so because they can only use base hotel standbys that were already in existence at the end of the secondary line process. So they can't create them just for that purpose. But if they already exist in open time, they still will be available for use for a long call reserve pilot. You mentioned that the company can still create base hotel standbys in the bid pack and during the secondary process. What's to stop them from just flooding the bid pack and secondary process with base hotel standbys? Well, Chris, theoretically they could, but we don't think that's a realistic option. First off, the PSIT, we would build all those hotel standbys onto lines. And those hotel standbys, for the same amount of coverage, cost quite a bit more. For instance, in September, the Memphis 767 five-day base hotel standby paid 28 hours and 40 minutes, while a reserve paid an even 24 hours for the exact same coverage. That's four hours and 40 minutes of difference for the exact same coverage. And the base hotel standby also requires a hotel room, ground transportation, and receives per diem. If they were to flood the system during the secondary line process, then the company runs the risk that all the secondary line or many of the secondary line pilots would receive base hotel standbys and leave trips in open time. While we're on the topic of reserve, and you mentioned tentacles before, the base hotel standby solution had a tentacle into reserve. Can you talk to the pilots about that? Thanks, Chris. And the company uh, w- was willing to agree with us on limiting their ability to create hotel standbys. One of their big uh, uses for those is to create extra reserve coverage when they feel they don't have enough short call reserves. Uh, so the solution to that came down to basically allowing the company to add those short call reserve blocks into open time for pilots to be able to pick up. But the one problem that uh, that we were concerned with there that, that we fixed was uh, the effect that that would have on open time and on the, the reserve manning model. These reserve blocks that the company is allowed to add don't count towards max open time or towards the reserve manning model. So they shouldn't affect any bid line adjustments that pilots are trying to make or have any effect on dropping uh, available reserve days. And another issue that we ran across during negotiation was the problem that pilots had trading our days for 
another pilot's trip. Currently, you can only trade for a single trip. We were able to change the language so that you can now trade a block of our days for multiple trips. And Chris, there was one more major change with the uh, reserve system that came right out of our opener. It was to create a preferencing option for pilots on reserve. And basically what we did there is we improved our first fly system. Previously, there were only two lists when you applied for first fly. There were people on first fly and people that weren't on first fly, and you didn't have any choices in, in what you were going to get when you were on that list. Now pilots will be able to elect first fly for a specific activity or for activities with limitations like West Coast, deadheads, no critical period, uh, things of that nature. For trips above 60 hours time away from base, those will be given priority consideration, basically just like they are today. But for trips less than 60 hours time away from base, those first fly elections will be assigned in seniority order. So if you ask for it, it's available, and you're the most senior, you will get it. Another one of the opener goals in Section 25 was to improve the bid line adjustment system. Can you talk about that some? Yes, Chris. While we didn't change the open time bid line adjustment system, we did change the open time notification system. The effect of that is pilots will no longer need to be on a device checking open time or auto polling open time, trying to find trips that meet uh, their criteria. So now pilots will be able to put in optionally, criteria for trips that they want. For instance, a trip on a certain day or to a certain city, deadheads, charters, etc. And when one of those trips becomes available, they will receive a text message. Is open time the only place where a pilot can opt in to receive text messages from the company? No, Chris. The draft system has also changed a bit too. Now pilots will optionally be able to opt into the draft system to receive a text message when a trip is available. If the trip is available more than four hours prior to showtime, there'll be a 15-minute window for pilots to respond whether they want to receive the trip or not. Out of those pilots that are interested in the draft trip, the pilot with the least number of draft hours in the past 180 days will receive the trip. This is similar to our current volunteer assignment system. But if it's less than four hours prior to showtime, the first pilot to respond that they would like the draft trip will receive it. In our podcast on Section 4, you discuss changes to PMP. Is there anything more you want to discuss about that while we're in Section 25? Yes, Chris. We did discuss PNP in Section 4. However, in Section 25, we clarified that PNP is one-time use. Additionally, we agreed to add PMU to the list of trips that cannot be traded, dropped, or proffered, like volunteer, draft, AVA, etc., From what I understand, in the company openers, they wanted to implement training lines. Can you talk to the pilots a little bit about that? Yeah, Chris. So the company did open it, as you mentioned. This is not the first time we've seen this proposed by the company. Previous negotiations, um, they've attempted to address this overall concern. And it's right in line with what we've said um, their opener goals have been, and that's to identify inefficiencies in the operation Um, And they clearly identified one here where they felt like they were paying two pilots to do the job of one. And we acknowledge that at the table, that there was certainly an identified issue there. Um, The challenge for us then was to go in and determine, um, rather than a wholesale change, a wholesale paradigm shift here, um, what could we do as a marginal step, um, a measured step to address the company concerns without creating a wholesale change? 
for what the first officers were used to bidding and not create a very disruptive schedule or limiting schedule for the line check airmen or those that would be impacted by these student lines. And uh, when we looked at these student lines, we basically took a three-pronged approach to how we would deal with them. Two of them were limits we put on which lines the company could select to use for student lines. And the third is a premium for those FOs that elect to uh, take part in the student line program. When you talk about the limits, first of all, this the lines that the company is allowed to designate are only those lines that uh, LCAs bid. It's non-pay-only LCA bids for that bid month. And when I say LCAs, it is limited to strict LCAs, not dual-qualified check airmen or standard check airmen. So of those LCAs that are not bidding pay-only, uh, the company could take 40% of those lines. So as an example, in April of this year, in the Memphis 767 bid pack, there were 523 first officers bidding, 350 regular lines. The company would have been able to designate eight lines in that bid pack as student lines. In the Memphis 777 bid pack, the numbers were 706 first officers, 485 regular lines, and the company would have been able to designate 12 student lines. And that's the maximum number the company would have been able to designate. It will depend month to month on how many the company actually uses. You know, Chris, what Rich has explained to you, where that's the worst case scenario in terms of the impact on potential first officer lines that are being bid. In a smaller bid pack, such as Indianapolis, Oakland, L.A., it's much less. In fact, the average in these smaller bid packs, it's just one everywhere else. So what we did is we gave the company a minimum of one. So if they couldn't reach the 40% threshold of the line check airmen that were bidding in non-pay-only status, then we allowed the company to choose or select one line from an LCA line. And like Rich mentioned, there's limitations placed on the LCA line. So the same LCA, if they, if they happen to be bidding um, two non-pay-only months in a row, well, the, if the first month they are selected for their line that they decided to fly, they can't then again in the following month select that same line check airman. So, for example, Chris, um, you know, we have senior line check airmen that may bid the same city month in and month out while they're not in pay-only status. And what that does is it actually prevents the company from from selecting that same line month in and month out. So if you have a senior check airman constantly bidding Baltimore every month, then it can't be utilized more than one month. Um, sequentially, they'll have to skip a month. So... Since we allow the LCAs to bid whatever whatever line they want, and frequently they will bid the same lines or the same cities uh, over and over again, we decided that the best way to protect those cities and those FOs that live in those cities was to attach this to the line check airman rather than the line itself. Yeah, in summary, it was the least disruptive way to allow access to this new thing called student lines. It was least disruptive for the line check airman and their bidding, and it gives the flexibility and puts the, the decision-making in the hands of the first officers who are bidding those lines. So they'll have the visibility on what those lines are. In other words, they'll be designated, and so there'll be a time before the first officer bid closes that they'll be able to see which lines those are, and then they need to make a decision if they want to bid them or bypass. It's also important to remember that the LCAs are not uh, all senior. They are, the seniorities for the LCAs go 
uh, throughout the spectrum. So they're not going to be able to, to pick uh, all of the senior lines and then only take senior lines for these. It will be lines throughout, throughout the bid pack. So what happens if a FO doesn't want to participate? Well, Chris, we, we recognize that this might not be a program that, that all FOs want to be a part of. So at the, when you put your bid in at the beginning of the process, there'll be a new option which, where you can opt out of student lines. Basically what that will do is if one of the lines that you bid, the one that you would have been awarded, is selected to be a student, student line, then you would just get your next choice on your bid. And Rich, for the FO who gets one of these student lines, what happens to the FO? Well, Chris, if your line is designated as a student line, you'll be removed from the line during the conflict processing window, and you'll be eligible for a, a new kind of makeup, uh, student makeup, SMU. And you'll be able to use this SMU during the view ad window. Uh, and whatever trips you pick up in the view ad window will be paid at 125%. So basically, it's an opportunity to go into the view ad window and rebuild your schedule and get paid 125% for the entire month. Well, what happens to the first officer who doesn't use all the SMU hours during the view ad window? Well, first of all, Chris, it would depend on why the pilot ended up in this position. Uh, there's no requirement for a pilot to use these SMU hours. So if he did this purposefully so that he would have more time off, that's uh, perfectly within his rights. If, however, he wanted to use all of his SMU hours and did not have enough uh, trips in so that he didn't utilize them all in the view ad window, then he has the opportunity to utilize uh, another option that we've um, added to the contract. Um, and this option is available to everyone. Uh, and basically, it is a build-up submission that you would put in during the view ad window. Um, and it would have... Uh, basically some general requirements, kind of like a, a general makeup request. Uh, and what would happen then is after all of the uh, view ads have been processed, if your line does not meet the min bid period guarantee, the company will use your build-up submission and uh, the trips that are still remaining in open time to attempt to build you up to um, at least min bid period guarantee, but no more than six hours over your awarded uh, line value. The important thing to remember here is that if you select or if you make a bid build-up submission, the company will try to put enough trips on your schedule to meet those limits up to at least min-bid period guarantee. So if you don't give the company enough options in your uh, build-up submission, they'll give you other trips that are available in open time in order to try to get you into that window. That was kind of a long intro into the uh, answer to your question, Chris, but uh, basically what happens if you don't get enough trips or you don't use up all of your SMU hours during the view ad window, then those hours will be put into an SMU bank. You'll be able to use those hours just as a normal makeup bank, only those hours will still maintain that 125% premium. And let me reiterate there, Chris, what Rich mentioned stemmed from the company's opener where they wanted to force everybody into... Um, reaching min-bid period guarantee, forcing flying on pilot's line, and we said that was unacceptable. We said uh, we're willing to discuss pilot's optionality there, so leaving the discretion to the pilot of whether or not they want it to be built up. And we have plenty of pilots that want to be built up, So, but it's really in the pilot's hands now to decide if they want that achieved through that selection. 
one of the last things I'd say, Chris, about the the student lines here, it's it's obviously a um, paradigm shift for pilots and for the first officers who have identified and, and utilized this um, aspect of the contract and they sit home and they get paid oftentimes or they'll go out and fly extra or, or whatever the case may be. Um, this is definitely a shift away from that, but it's not an entire shift. So Rich mentioned at the beginning of this that it limits uh, the scope of this to 40% of the line check airmen that are not in pay-only status. So that's 40% of the total um, of the line check airmen not in pay-only status. So that means that 60% of the line check airmen who are in a flying line, the same thing will happen tomorrow that it does today. So in other words, that, that same ability exists where they're senior FOs or FOs who are buddy bidding and using that technique um, and hopefully going to get bumped off bumped off the trips or the line, that's still going to happen tomorrow. And there's going to be plenty of ad hoc training that goes on where this doesn't fit exactly in the training department um, scheme when they start building lines. There's going to be some ad hoc training, training that falls through where pilots will still be getting bumped off of trips for training that still will exist um, as we move forward. Yeah, Pat. And that's, uh, that's 60% of the LCAs plus all the DCAs and SCAs that happen to be flying on lines that might do training that month. Can you talk some about the jury service changes in Section 25? Sure, Chris, we sure can. Um, you know, the first thing is for the pilots to realize the pay for jury service has not changed. What has changed, Chris, is it's more of a two-way process um, between the pilot and the pack. Now the pilot has additional notifications with the company that are required as a result of jury service. So, Chris, in addition to the two-way um, communication back and forth between the company and the pilot. In particular, December uh, requires the pilot, if the company requests a change, that the pilot engage on that and make a good faith attempt at actually moving that date out of December. You know the company just wanted to provide as many bodies as possible during peak, and that was their their emphasis here, was to try and move that jury service away from December and, and get cooperation from the pilot. Let's step back for a second to the openers. You had three goals in Section 25 scheduling. And one of the goals was to create new disruption provisions and improve the current provisions regarding triggers and pay. Can you talk about that? Sure, Chris. We were able to establish uh, several new disruption triggers, uh, the first of which is a, a disruption for a front-end deadhead revised to operate. Um, that's been a problem for our pilots going back quite a ways, and uh, we were able to establish a disruption that pays an hour and a half uh, credit hours for, for that disruption, just like a back-end deadhead being revised. Next, uh, it's not really a new disruption, but we were able to increase the disruption for the first extra landing, which now pays an hour and a half credit hours. It was previously just a half credit hour. Uh, we were also able to add a day to critical disruption, which basically is for a trip where more than half of the duty periods operated during the day, and it's revised so that more than half of the duty periods touch the critical duty period. The duty period doesn't have to be a critical duty period, it simply has to touch the critical. And that disruption also play, pays an hour and a half. And the last one is, is a two-part change to a, a previous uh, um, disruption, and that's the change of layovers. Previously, you got an hour and a half of credit if more than half of your layovers changed. We were able to change this disruption so that if 50% or more of your layovers change, you get three credit hours. So it doubles the old hour and a half credit 
to three credit hours for more than 50%. And then if 75% or more of your layovers change, then you get four credit hours. Those are two uh, separate disruptions, but they're not additive. So for one trip, you would get either three credit hours or four credit hours, but not both. And that change seems small to go from more than 50% to 50% or more, but it actually greatly increases the number of times that this disruption will hit. And as I previously mentioned, it does double the previous amount from one and a half credit hours to three. Well, thanks for coming. Any final thoughts on Section 25 scheduling? Hey, Chris, as we mentioned from the beginning, you know, the company had identified several problematic areas from a bargaining perspective as we entered Section 25 negotiation, and we opposed many of those. Uh, but that being said, as we've noted here, uh, we've made some changes um, in areas that where we were willing to address when we could um, see the company provided supporting data, and they made reasonable arguments. So we made measured moves and limited moves in their direction, um, but again, keeping the pilot in the focus in terms of determining the outcome in a month-in and month-out basis and keeping the pilots as the decision makers and, and whether or not they want to fly more, whether or not the, um, you know, they, they want to opt into these student lines. So that's been the focus. On our side of the equation, I think uh, we, we perform very well. If you grade us on our openers, uh, we've protected the flexibility uh, in scheduling, and, and we added language that provides pilots with greater options today than they had before with newly negotiated language. We've addressed many of the frustrations our pilots have faced, um, real frustrations during the past um, years in the pand pandemic, um, by creating more compensation when schedules are revised and creating additional items that now qualify for disruption penalties. And we've also addressed some long-held frustrations or aggravations from the pilots, um, primarily the base hotel standby issue and what happens from a utilization standpoint for a pilot who's on R24, and that's the de facto assignment into base hotel standby, therefore washing out any benefit that the R24 assignment had for pilots. It really never was a long call. It's never been treated as a long call. So we really fixed that issue. Um, we've also limited the scope in which the company can now use base hotel standbys in the bid pack and in secondary lines. So we've made some, you know, I think real good improvements here. Again, keeping the quality of life at the center of our focus uh, for Section 25. And, you know, the last thing I'd say is we really do appreciate the help, the assistance that we receive from our subject matter experts, in particular here, Ted uh, from the scheduling committee, the work that he's put in and highlighting and bringing um, all the fleets that work under the PSIT, bringing all their issues forward and combining those with uh, what the pilots identified in the surveys. Um, but his scheduling expertise was critical at the table and helped us reach a lot of these solutions. Thanks again. And thanks for listening to this episode of our TA podcast series on Section 25 Scheduling. Throughout this process, you can get the most factual information at our TA website, fdxta.com. There you will find the actual TA document, TA highlights, TA frequently asked questions, videos, these podcasts, and other information. Once again, thanks for listening, and as always, be safe out there, and we'll see you next time.